Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories podcast. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Todd Zwicky. Todd is a law professor at George Mason University and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. So, so Todd, you edited a book called Unprofitable Schooling uh, that discusses the, the causes and fixes for higher ed in, in the U.S. What, what do you think are one of the b- biggest misconceptions people have around why costs are increasing so much and, and where the money is being spent? There, there, people have a lot of misconceptions about it. Let's put it that way generally. What we can say is that um, costs have been going up for a long time. I think maybe the biggest misconception people have is that increased government support, including financial aid, makes college cheaper. Uh, In fact, it makes it more expensive. Um, According to a New York Federal Reserve study, 65 cents out of every dollar of increased um, federal funding for higher education gets passed through in the form of higher prices to students um, through tuition especially. Um, And what's distressing about that, Eric, is um, that the money is not going into the classrooms. Um, What we know is that um, the amount of money for going to teaching and that sort of thing is a percentage of the budget stay pretty much the same. Where is the money going? It's going to these where people suspect it is, unfortunately, which is going to these palatial buildings these ridiculous rec centers and, you know, state of the art now is every school has to have a lazy river uh, and uh, a swimming complex and the other places into the bureaucrats. Uh, you know, the growth in administrative spending on colleges has just been huge. Um, and so it really is sort of bread and circuses rather than uh, better education where all this money is going. Is there anything that, that would cause this to change? Uh, well, what we argue for in the book, and I think it's the right way, is that uh, basically what we've ended up doing is recreating the healthcare system in education, which is since really it started with the uh, um, the GI Bill, which is third party payer of education, uh, which is all these guaranteed student loans, all the money, all the financial aid basically is disconnected those uh, who consume the product from those who pay for it, which is what creates this price spiral, just like in uh, in medicine. And so what we argue for is there are there is a proven track record of an institution that results in better quality and lower prices. That's competition. Uh, and so if we want to fix this problem, the way to fix this problem uh, uh, is competition, which means going after the accreditation cartels uh, that create barriers to entry to new models, whether Internet models and, and the like. Um, and all the political apparatuses that go around propping up the current higher education system. And unfortunately, what we've seen is the opposite, uh, which is a strengthening of the higher education accreditation cartels um, and protection from competition. And, and so they bring up two questions. What do you say to people who say, no, it's not a cartel. We just need to keep out, you know, all the fakers like Trump University or, you know, <laughs> it's, it's for people's own good. Uh, but it, it's not a cartel, you know. Uh, and in medicine, we do need, you know, in other fields, we have accreditation. You know, right. these are children or whatever. What do you say to those people? That's exactly right, Eric, which is the history tells us this, which is why did I mention the GI Bill? Well, the GI Bill, obviously, people favored it. They think it's a great initiative. The problem was what happened was that once basically I got out of the army, it could be a lot of me, a lot of us want a degree without actually having to do the work. 
And so the government said they would pay for it. So what happened? We basically got diploma mills. So when the GI Bill, this is a, an article by Josh Hall, a chapter in the book by Josh Hall, where he talks about this, what happened? Uh, when they reauthorized the GI Bill after the Korean War, what they said is, well, we've got to do something about the fact that there's these diploma mills now. There weren't diploma mills and people had to pay their own money <laughs> to get an education, right? But when you're not paying for it, it's a pretty good deal to get a degree without doing the work if you don't want to. So what did they do? They said, we got to figure out some way of figuring out a legitimate university from a fly-by-night operation. They glommed onto these accreditation uh, uh, cartels. Um, and yeah, in other areas, you have quality uh, ways of dealing with things. You've got, you know, underwriters laboratory and that sort of thing, but they don't act as a barrier to entry uh, in the way that accreditation does. Uh, And what accreditation does is reverses the tail of the dog, which is it says in order to survive as a university now, you have to be able to get federal money. In order to get federal money, you have to be accredited. Uh, And so the accreditation, uh, uh, and there's not really not many other institutions in society other than ones like uh, like medicine, where you have this third party payer dynamic uh, that gives rise to these uh, to this sort of uh, problem of consumers paying for things that aren't worth what they're paying for. And you only get that when it's subsidized by somebody else. And and what would cause the accreditation you know, cartel to, to be disrupted. Is there something that, you know, could the president do, do something to do so? Or is it a, um, does this have to come from private, I don't know, innovations from without, outside, outside the system? I, I don't see it happening from within the system. Now, here's what's interesting to me, Eric, is that there's a lot of people who say in, the internet will disrupt and transform higher education. And my response is, in any sane world, the internet would disrupt and uh, change higher education. In our world, the internet is going to take a long time before it does that because of the accreditation cartel. And so what they've basically done to internet-based uh, uh, institutions is basically force them to collect all the barnacles of, uh, of traditional accreditation, libraries and they have rules on how many carols, study carols have to be in the library. I'm a law professor. I think I've been to the library four times in the last 10 years because everything I have is, is online, right? And so there's all this rigmarole and all this stuff that's required uh, that basically keeps you from offering a reduced price uh, internet-based uh, uh, institution that then can offer degrees uh, that will be generally recognized. And so I think, you know, eventually that's going to happen. Eventually creative destruction has to happen. You know, the old saying is something that can't go on forever won't. That's what higher education looks like uh, today. Um, And eventually something's got to give. But I think it's going to take longer than it should not because of market dynamics, but because of political dynamics. And don't don't forget, higher education is a hugely politically powerful industry. I haven't looked at the last election, but if you look at Barack Obama, for example, you can go on the Open Secrets website and you can see the biggest donors to uh, by employer to Barack Obama's campaign. And I think of the 12 uh, uh, biggest donors, um, number one was California Berkeley, Number three was Harvard. I think Goldman Sachs may have been second. Like six of the uh, the 12 largest donors were universities and university systems. Um, and they get protection 
uh, for that. And that's what we're going to be seeing, I think, over the next uh, a few years. Um, and is it, it both parties or just to one? It's primarily uh, it's primarily the Democratic Party, but uh, but it's not a, uh, an issue that Republicans have generally fought. Right. And I think it partly it's because it's just the class bias of Washington in particular, which is they think of higher education as, you know, Ivy Halls and the quad and going to football games on Saturday and then having dorm parties and frat parties. That's the experience of about 10 percent, 15 percent of uh, Americans and maybe you know 15 yeah. percent of those who go to college. Most people don't get education yeah. in that way, but that's the way they think of what a education is supposed to be all the bells and whistles um, uh, and the like, and they're afraid of sort of pushing on that. Your your research also recently extends to uh, sort of financial literacy and and consumer financial protection, and and you've written a lot about student loans. Uh, Unpack some of the misconceptions there or what was surprising in in, in your research or what's important for people to know uh, about that. Great question, Erica, um, because this is obviously a big issue, and this is an area which there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, uh, I just finished uh, during the 2020 year, um, I was the chairman of the of a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau task force on federal consumer financial law. Um, and in Chapter 12 of that, uh, we look at issues uh, confronting, among other issues, both financial literacy and student loans. So I'll talk about student loans and we'll come back to financial literacy. But when you come to student loans, what, what you see are a couple things, which is number one, the the data suggests that uh, that that uh, uh, that student loans. Uh, most people don't realize is that student loans default rates are inversely related to the uh, the amount of debt outstanding, which is to say the highest default rates are among those who've borrowed less than five or ten ten thousand dollars for college. The lowest default rates are for those who have. Uh, gotten forty or fifty or seventy thousand dollars of college. Why is that? Well, it turns out that the reason is is that default rates are not driven by that factor. Default rates are driven by basically two and sort of three factors, which is the two key factors are number one are demographics, uh, which is that uh, um, uh, that uh, demographically uh, default rates are are correlated with things like whether you're older when you go to school, whether you have kids when you go to school race, sex, males are more likely to default than, uh, than females. Uh, and a lot of the, uh, and what, and it's the first thing. The second thing that is, uh, is graduation, whether you complete your, your course of study. Um, and then the third thing that is, uh, uh, also that's positively correlated is higher income makes it less likely you'll default higher debt makes it less likely you'll default. And that's because they're correlated which is people who borrow a lot of money are people who've gone to a selective school usually who complete their four-year course of study and they get a good job when they're done. So the default rate issue isn't a matter of somebody going to Swarthmore and majoring in sociology or women's studies instead of engineering. That's the cartoon version. The default problem is caused by somebody who goes to, you know, two or three semesters of sort of a regional state university and then drops out. And they get the debt, but they don't get the the, the value of completing the degree. Um, what we see, for example, is students who graduate who go to community colleges have the same default rates as those who go to for-profit colleges. Why? Because the demographics of those two groups are the uh, are, are the same. And so, um, and so, what people think is that 
all these high debts cause people to default. The second thing is, is for the same reason, student loans um, do not appear to be fundamentally crippling the financial development of students, which is our graduates, which surprised me. It's they're later to mature. So if you have a lot of student loan debt when you graduate from college, you are you buy a, you get a mortgage and buy a home later in life. But eventually, by about the age of 30 or 35, you catch up uh, and the gap disappears. And again, it's basically because of the premium of going to college, graduating from college and getting that wage premium uh, balances out. And so um, and so when we're talking about these student loan um, jubilees and discharging student loans, we really are talking about a very regressive policy that will benefit the highest wage earners in the economy, disproportionately those who go to graduate school because they have the uh, the highest uh, uh, default rates, um, and the people who are most able to pay their debts uh, with, the, with the least hardship are the ones who would benefit the most from the student loan bailout programs. So how should they be redone? That's a good question. And, and, that, and that's a really challenge, uh, Eric, because, um, because every proposal on the table right now has serious unintended consequences, both from liber- liberals, you know, progressives and conservatives, which is if the idea of, is a student loan jubilee um, or just discharging student loans, not only does that raise real equity concerns, but the fundamental problem, why, are, why we have so many student loans is because college costs so much. Um, is allowing students to discharge their debts going to do anything to cause colleges to contain their costs? We already said that colleges already capture, you know, 65 cents out of every dollar of increased uh, aid they get. And now you're basically going to give students another free 10 grand or 50 grand <laughs> to borrow. Colleges are going to just devour that. We're, we're really good at vacuuming up money. That's one thing colleges are good at now. Maybe we don't provide good educations, but we're really good at sucking up uh, money. Uh, uh, bankruptcy is another proposal. Again, the problem with bankruptcy, and I'm a bankruptcy lawyer by background, the problem with bankruptcy is the benefits go to those who borrow the most. So if you got $80,000 in student loans and you graduate from college with a good paying job, no assets, and $80,000 of debt, the temptation to file bankruptcy into that situation is very, very tempting. Um, And you're going to do okay uh, uh, in life. And so I think that whole system unravels. The favorite of conservatives is the idea of putting the universities, they call them in the first loss position, which is that if you don't pay your student loans, the universities would have to repay it for you or would have to repay a chunk of it. Well, again, I think the only people who are might be more ruthlessly financially savvy, uh, amoral than universities, maybe some people on Wall Street, but universities are unbelievable money machines. And go back to what I said, demographics is what drives defaults. And so what is going to happen if you basically say universities are responsible for their student um, loans is universities are going to just stop admitting low-income students, minority students, anybody who's at risk, they'll just stop admitting them and just admit more of the rich kids. And you know what the fastest growing college sport in America is? Men's lacrosse. Why? Because men's lacrosse is the favorite of Division III uh, universities because men's lacrosse players, those are the guys, the upper middle class, 
you know, guys from the suburbs who will pay sticker price <laughs> for their for their college education. And uh, um, and that's basically, you know, it's a business. It's a business. And so you've got to think about how universities are going to respond to these incentives. And so all of the proposals on the table right now have serious unintended consequences. Um, and, and it's not quite clear that that the benefits outweigh the uh, the costs. Um, maybe some targeted relief at those at the very bottom with small debts um, who are most prone to default, but that's a lot less grandiose than the things people are talking about. I'm curious if, if you were tasked with proposing one, what principles might might be involved there uh, in, or how you would think about it? And then related but separate, I'm curious if you think uh, income share agreements are a real, you know, if you'd recommend them. Uh, yeah, um, I would say two things. On the first one, the best proposal I have seen uh, is one that um, uh, offers basically everybody, like say everybody in America, you know, we're just making up money now, right? It's trillion here, trillion there. We used to say trillion here, trillion here, talking about real money. Now we're not even talking about real money as far as I could tell uh, the way we spend money. But the best proposal I've seen is uh, uh, an idea that would basically say everybody in America just gets a $10,000 check. One time. And you can use it to pay down your student loans. But if you're somebody who got a scholarship or if you're somebody who went to a less expensive state university or you worked your way through college and you don't have student loans or you paid off your student loans, then you get $10,000. And that may be as good a way to do it and not just focus it on those who have borrowed for college and haven't paid off their debt. I think that may be a proposal that would be both fair. uh, It would be expensive, obviously. Um, or te- or our tax rebate or whatever, right? Um, that would be what I would think would be the best way. Income share agreements and other ideas like that, I think are a good idea. Uh, the problem is they don't really get at this underlying problem, uh, which is yes, income share agreements work uh, for those who, you know, engineering, that sort of thing, who have pretty guaranteed uh, um, uh, prospects. Right, but I don't think income share agreements are going to get at this underlying default rate problem because the marginal student um, who is going to drop out of college after three uh, semesters, it doesn't really work for that person. And it may be that our real underlying problem, Eric, is I suspect that we just have people going to college who probably shouldn't be going to college. College just isn't the right thing for somebody who doesn't have the background or the desire to get a four-year degree and, and, and sort of get that course of study and the opportunity cost of not working and then to get the, uh, the, you know, during that period and then to get the loan strapped on their back is probably not very efficient or fair uh, to, to that person. And we should probably be rethinking this idea of everybody going to college um, uh, in every case, while at the same time keeping it accessible for uh, for especially lower income uh, students who do have the who do have that ability. If we're having this conversation a decade from now, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious if we were having this conversation a decade uh, earlier, if this conversation would have been drastically different. Um, and then my question is, if we're having this a decade from now. We didn't seem super optimistic that a, lo- a lot would change from within. Uh, I, I don't know how optimistic we are about things changing from without. H- how different do you think this conversation is uh, a decade from now, or is it kind of somewhat? Yeah, the the interesting thing is, is one of the things we saw and may see again, but one of the things we saw during the roaring economy before COVID hit that I was watching very carefully is a lot, you know, employers traditionally, and there's various interesting regulatory and litigation reasons that seem to lie behind this, 
But the idea that we've got, we've had two things going on, which is one sort of the general uh, requirement of having a college degree to apply for a lot of jobs that didn't, that don't really require a college degree. That seems to be driven in part by things like uh, um, some people have argued, I think, with some credence, things like um, discrimination law, uh, which prohibit uh, employers basically from offering skills based exams and the like. And so they have to substitute credentialism uh, for direct measurement of of skills. And courts have basically said a college degree is one of the things that you, you can look at. But the second thing is just credentialism generally, right? The arms race of, well, now if you only have a bachelor's degree, then you got to get a master's degree, right? Uh, or a professional degree or whatever. And one of the things we saw um, during the roaring economy before COVID hit was that a lot of employers were starting to loosen up on these things. A lot of employers were starting to consider hiring people who didn't have college degrees, who traditionally required that. And so uh, so labor markets may be the instrumentality eventually that, uh, that that drives this and just competition and globalization. Um, and so uh, um, and so that seems to be the, the, the most compelling dynamic I've been able to identify to kind of roll back some of this credentialism and the like. Just to close the loop there, any other predictions you, you might leave us with or if not predictions, sort of requests for innovation or requests for experimentation from either the tech world or 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 otherwise? What I'll be interested to see is um, people have been saying for a long time that what we would end up uh, seeing is certification, like skills-based certification in place of credentialism and um, degrees. The coin of the realm has been the, the credit, right, and the degree, uh, which is what Brian Kaplan uh, in particular has written on, the signaling function of uh, of education, right, which is you know, as Brian says, the best investment you'll ever make in your life is going to just the fourth year of college. Uh, because the first three years, you don't get that much. You get a little bit of a, a wage increase. But when you get the, uh, the diploma, that's when you get the big bump, right? Uh, and so if you could just skip the first three, you know, the fourth year of college is a great investment. Um, and, and that would be, you know, what I would be watching would be whether or not skills-based credentialism eventually does take off as an alternative to uh, um, uh, you know, certificate skills-based certification as opposed to credentialism, uh, which is what we've relied on in the signaling model uh, that we've relied yeah. on for many years. Do Do you think the uh, employment, you know, training for employment job to be done, and sort of the liberal arts job to be done, does that get unbundled even further? Um, it, it has to be. This has been, you know, if if one were to we we've created this hodgepodge, and again, I think it's because of government uh, and government intervention in this, which is higher education basically entered into a bargain, starting with the GI Bill and accelerating, which is basically the government would give us money, and I say us because I'm in the I'm in the racket, right? They would give us money. Um, and we thought, well, we'll just keep doing what we're always doing and we'll just get paid more to do it. Right. And we do get paid a lot to do it now. Right. Tenured faculty are like uh, like an old medieval guild. Right. We're getting smaller and smaller as a percentage of the faculty getting we're working less and less, getting paid more and more. This money's just sloshing in and we're capturing it uh, in all kinds of different ways. And then they basically hire a bunch of adjuncts to balance the books uh, to teach all our students. Uh, right. And so we thought, oh, this is a great life for us. And it's a pretty great life for us. But he's, eventually what happened was once the government started giving us the money, they said, demonstrate the value proposition for us. Right. What are we getting for it? Prove that you're actually training a workforce. 
and we're not set up to do that. And so we've basically glommed this, this professional training, this skills-based training on top of the old traditional liberal arts model that's you know hundreds of years old and goes back to Cambridge and Oxford. You wouldn't design either system the way it is today. You wouldn't design, you know, if you were going to just teach people skills, they would look like for-profit colleges look like today. And that's what for-profit colleges do. And if you taught liberal arts, it wouldn't have all this professional training glommed onto it. So we've kind of created this Frankenstein monster that I think doesn't do either very well because it's not well designed for either. It's just kind of jammed together because of the money. That, uh, that, that that makes sense, and that's a good place to to wrap. Todd, for, for people who want to go deeper in, into your into your work, wh- where might you uh, recommend them? Uh, well, as you mentioned, Eric, uh, uh, my book uh, "Unprofitable Schooling" um, is available on Amazon. You can find it in the Cato uh, Institute. We did um, uh, we did a conference on this. If people want to dig more into that, and it covers a whole range of things, including the history of higher education, um, the current uh, environment, and in the future. Um, and then I, my, my personal web page has all my articles and uh, um, journalism as well collected uh, there. And so that's um, you can find that through my uh, George Mason website or my Cato Institute uh, website. Awesome. Uh, Todd, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a, it's been a great one. It's been a lot of fun, Eric. Thanks. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.